So it's good to see so many people here at five in the morning. <laughs> and the, uh, <coughs> it's a great honor to be the, the center of everyone's attention on this day, the big seven zero. And uh, of course, having been involved in meditation for so many years, you, you realize it's, uh, that age is just perception. <coughs> Numbers one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and uh, and then the way we identify with age, with our age. So I remember when I was nine years old, my sister was eleven, and I remember just waiting for my birthday. Ten years to be ten years old, so I could be out of the single-digit category. At nine years old, ten years old seemed seemed uh, something, you know, like time for growing up. <coughs> At seventy, it's uh, <laughs> two digits. Uh, I'm not. I'm not looking forward to three digits. But uh, in just on the birthday, uh, birth, of course, is is what we contemplate in when we're reflecting on Dhamma or the way things are. This, uh, even though most of us don't remember the moment of birth, we we realize that. This is the result of it, this present karmic formation, physical body is the result of, of birth. And then it grows and degenerates till it reaches uh, what we call death. So in the Buddha's teaching, it's Always this this chance every moment, isn't it, to between birth and death, to awaken. And so this has always been something that uh, I felt was was a very wise way of of teaching, and the the uh, way we celebrate the birth, death, enlightenment of the Buddha all on one day. And just that paradigm, birth and death, and the enlightenment is the point of awareness between those two. So, death, I, I, you know, is a, is in the future. Birth, I can't remember. So, in enlightenment, or is awareness here and now, awakening, being a, a ten, paying attention to the experience of life. In, within the restrictions of this karmic formation. And so each one, each one of us is restricted in, through the five khandhas and we have to operate within the, these uh, 
parameters, physical body, and then we, the conditioning that we get, that we acquire after birth, in terms of the limitations that cultural conditioning or social conditioning place on us. And we each, you know, become uh, adjusted to that, those kind of restrictions, identities, with uh, race, gender, class, uh, ethnic background, religion, generation, and so forth. And these identities uh, tend to, to bind us if we, if we don't awaken to if we don't awaken to their limitation, then we, we are always bound to that limitation and blinded by the limitations that we're experiencing. So that's the avicca, or the ignorance that the Buddha pointed to, the cause of suffering. Then the, then the word enlightenment, some people don't like the word uh, because we don't quite know what it means. It, it can, it can uh, sound like some grand uh, kind of blazing experience. So from the limited position of, of thinking and the way our thought patterns and the way we perceive things, we we see enlightenment as something maybe very grand or remote or impossible for us. And we can celebrate the Buddha's enlightenment and and completely ignore uh, the ever-present awareness that we're all capable of realizing every moment of our lives. So in, a, in that reflection on form, you know, on the uh, impermanent, uh, soulless nature of form, uh, isn't meant to to be a complaining resentment or rejection of form, but a, rec- uh, a recognition of limitation. Seeing how all forms are very limited and no matter how grand or beautiful or miserable their qualities might be the the very nature of form is birth and death beginning and ending and then in the way that that the Buddha taught of awakeness using awareness that awareness is actually you know awareness of form puts us in that relationship, uh, transcending the forms that we're in, so that the forms then are seen as uh, aramana, or objects, rather than as the subject. So, this is the, the practice, say, of vipassana meditation, isn't it? Where you're actually taking the position of enlightenment, 
of awareness, of awakenedness, and reflecting on the, the f- form as, as you experience it in its subtleties or its, its uh, coarseness through the body or through the mind. So in a lifetime, they, in, in my own life, having this will be my 38th vasa as a monk, as a bhikkhu, and 39th as a, as counting the samanera. This has been a, a continuous uh, experience of of uh, remembering this. Awakening that this is the this is this is what our what we're doing in the, as the samanas is is the form is for this awakeness to remind to remember wake up and present not to not to attach identify quarrel and and complicate the conditioned uh, world that we live in but to use the conditioned realm for awaken because this is the realm that we're experiencing very strongly <coughs> so it's uh say the satipatthana uh the four foundations of mindfulness these these kind of teachings are the uh, kind of skillful means the buddha used to encourage us to investigate to break through the attachment that we tend to have toward the form. The unquestioning uh, identity with what we're feeling or thinking or the body itself. So someone that never questions and never investigates experience then is is one who is always limited and bound into this endless cycle of rebirth. So that we just keep repeating the same things over and over. And you can see in uh, in uh, 70 years how if I had never discovered Buddhism or Buddhist meditation, then I would, I could just see that the tendency to just repeat, um, not out of even wanting to, but just the momentum of habit, of just the, the, the way I would think, or emotional habits. So in, and I've told you many times about my experience when I was in the Peace Corps, in this very kind of tropical paradise in, in Malaysia, and, uh, thinking, reaching the age of 30, had my 30th birthday there, and thinking, uh, I'm 30 years old now, this was 40 years ago, (laughs) and uh, even though I'm in this, this uh, tropical paradise, I've always, you know, I've dreamed of living in a tropical paradise, I grew up in the northwest where it rained all the time, and so I always dreamed of living in some place with palm trees and 
crystal coral waters and sandy beaches. And uh, then I, when I joined the Peace Corps, I was sent to one of these tropical paradises. And everything was, you know, in terms of worldly conditions and so forth, was quite, uh, quite good. Except the, my way of thinking, and I keep repeating the same. I still had these em- very emo- strong emotional reactions and self-obsessions, and and uh, that would keep arising, not particularly due to anything, you know, to, uh, anything there, but just uh, this was all I knew how to do was just uh, be caught in these reactions to life even when the environment itself was was very good you know nothing to really complain about or blame I, no obvious person or things to blame for my unhappiness and a sense of despair that arose from that thinking you know am i trapped forever in it? do i have to live 30 more years just repeating these same old habits over and over till I die, and that was very depressing. Because in those days, in I'd, I'd, in the psychology, the modern psychology at that time, was, would assume that your whole character was formed in your first few years, and you just uh, had spent the rest of your life kind of a victim of the of that early conditioning. <coughs> And the and the best you could do was kind of, you know, make the best of it, I guess, or or go through years of psychoanalysis, uh, trying to sort it out. So at thirty is not now seems very young, but but when you, but I I recognize at the age of thirty. <laughs> that my youth was gone, you know, no longer could, uh, that period of experience was over, and yet the mental states were still, you know, what to do with them. I could, I could see I didn't want to just be stuck in these patterns, but I didn't know how not to be, how to, how to get out of it. Of course, there's a measure of repression and denial in ways of uh, that that you use to to deal with it. But also, something was aware that 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 this even increased the amount of misery and fear that uh, would be around me all the time. You know, seemed to be like a ghost or a specter that that followed me everywhere. So then the opportunity to uh, was in Southeast Asia, in Malaysia, so I could go to visit uh, Buddhist countries. So I went to Thailand. And uh, to, you know, being uh, already very interested in Buddhism, I this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to, when I finish my Peace Corps commitment, I'm going to go to Thailand and learn how to practice meditation. So that's what I did. 
So there was, you know, in spite of the kind of despair and sense of hopelessness about my life, there was that, that was the light at the end of the tunnel. There was some faith or interest, just a, a possible hope. You know, with despair, there's no hope at all when you're caught in that emotion. The, the hope doesn't arise, but, the, but then the one spark of hope would arise when I would think of the Buddha. So that was obviously the direction to go in. So then, in, in terms of practice, in my uh, those years living in Thailand were very much aimed at, at uh, this practice of meditation, which at first seemed also impossible. When I first started meditation, it just, you know, the, the mind, uh, I, I wanted to, uh, you know, I wanted quick results. <coughs> But in spite of the, the many uh, attempts and failures at meditation in the first few years, it, there was something, you know, that was awakening. The awakeness did happen in spite of the, the strong emotional habits that would uh, tend to easily take over conscious experience. So then in the, the year I was at Samanera, I, I lived uh, in a monastery. I w this was before I met Ajahn Chah. Where I lived in a monastery, meditation monastery, in the province of Nong Khai. And uh, there I, I was in this... Uh, situation where you just live alone in a little cootie. Well, I lived there for about 11 months. And of course, this was, this was like jumping into the middle of the Pacific Ocean, really. <laughs> because, uh, it was, you know, I was, uh, I tend to be quite impulsive as, as a and, and kind of throw myself into things. So I did this. I just wanted to, to uh, get away, to disappear from the world. Just to dissolve and no longer be anybody. So, so I remember the first night in this little cootie, uh, you know, after going through the process of Samanera ordination and then, and then all the kerfuffle around entering the Vasa and things I didn't understand half the time what was going on uh, because it was all strange and new. And I found myself alone in this little hut in the forest. And, uh, and I noticed that I couldn't see anything, that it was so dark, it was so, the night was so black there in the forest. That I went into the darkest corner of the cootie and sat there, and then I realized I totally disappeared. You know, I held my hand up in front of my eyes. I couldn't see my own hand. It was so black, so dark. And so, uh, such a relief, 
you know, just feeling this sense of not being anybody, not standing out. No, no longer existing. And uh, rather than being terrified of this, I found this a uh, sense of great relief. So that was uh, almost the first night that, that I lived in this, started this retreat, in this little hut. And during that year, it was uh, quite powerful uh, uh, I just uh, explored the Four Noble Truths day in and day out until I, you know, just just completely read that the book I I teach you, the Word of the Buddha, until till uh, I think I must have read that and explored that and put it into practice uh, for all those those months till I had insight into those truths. So the first few months were, were the first noble truth was the, the, uh, the obvious, the reality of my life. <laughs> because as much as I like disappearing, uh, then, uh, then one had to eat and one had to, you know, live alone. Nobody to talk to, nothing to do. I only had the, that little book called Word of the Buddha to read, nothing to read Nothing to do all day and night except uh, exist there. And so I, I practiced various uh, kinds of, you know, meditation techniques I'd learned. But after a while, you, you know, your mind just, you just don't want to do them anymore. And, uh, and then uh, being left alone without any chance of distraction uh, all the repressions of a lifetime came up. And I was 32 at the time, so 32 years of conditioning started kind of bubbling up into consciousness. Now that can be very terrifying for people. Uh, sometimes they, they just freak out, you know, it's too much to uh, st- to take uh, the neg- the amount of say if anger or resentment that one accumulates in one's life when it starts uh, coming into consciousness uh, self hatred uh, and uh, and incredible resentment towards everything so this was uh, and yet there was something in me that that just said, you know, be patient, you know. Uh, and during that time, I don't think I ever wanted to leave. Uh, the alternative <coughs> of leaving that place was going back into that world that I so longed to, to transcend, to get out of. That I knew there was no hope that I'd fall back into just despair if I if I left, so I stayed, and then uh, after about three months, things began to. I started having the from the hell. I started having heavenly experiences. You go from one extreme, from from just uh, unmitigated anger, resentment, 
self-hatred, boredom, uh, incredible restlessness to uh, to just bliss and kind of heavenly states of purity and beauty. So then this was uh, this was quite a wonderful wanted, wanting to stay in that realm to live in the realm, the heavenly realms. But then the more I tried to, you know, if I just left it alone, it seemed to have its own momentum and then it would, and then, it, then, it, then things calmed down to more ordinariness of life. But there's still the longing, you know, one gets addicted to, to heavenly states. They're so pleasant, that, you know, you, you just want more and more of them. But then that very desire would make it impossible, just trying to, to make myself create these realms out of desire. Because the actual blissful states just happened. They were not constructed by me. They weren't, they weren't kind of, I wasn't even expecting them. They just appeared because the conditions allowed that. Once the the grasping takes place, the memory of, of happiness and bliss and beauty and the longing for it, then the conditions for suffering are back again. <coughs> so many of you probably have m- these kind of experiences yourself, you know, having had uh, bliss and happiness and pity and sukha and ekakata and and the experience of purity and beauty, the, the memory, we then we remember, and grasping the memory takes us back into the realm of suffering. So this is in the, the, the like the Four Noble Truths, this is the, the power of this teaching, is that using this paradigm for investigation, grasping of the five khandhas out of ignorance is the cause of suffering. So during that year in, in as a summoner, the, I, I actually explored the my experience through using the, the Four Noble Truths. <coughs> and so that's been my practice for 38 years now. It's merely that, you know, just uh, that paradigm. I have, I have, and because of that, I've never felt any great longing to, to even study even more than that. You know, never, I'm not particularly a great scholar or academic or authority on the Bariyati Dhamma uh, because I never felt the need for it because of the, the power of insight through those uh, Four Noble Truths. Then the uh, following year, taking the Upasampada, the bhikkhu, uh, 
ordination and then going to uh, stay with Ajahn Chah in Uborn. And that was uh, his approach was uh, ordinariness. So the life in, in Wat Pong was all around just ordinary life of monastic life. Uh, there was no kind of periods of, of uh, seclusion or I never went on a 10-day meditation retreat till I came to England. <laughs> Just uh, developing mindfulness in daily life. And of course, uh, I remember longing to, to have these blissful experiences again. You know, going, uh, told many times that going off and to going off to isolated place in order to just uh, have this experience uh, would uh, would be counterproductive. You know, the more I thought it or you know tried to manipulate conditions uh, to to find this kind of bliss again would would lead to um, its opposite. And so I began to just uh, listen more to to Lumpur Cha. As I began to understand uh, the language better, I could actually, um, you know, uh, put into practice what he was what he was teaching and what he was advising, encouraging. So in the all these years that have passed, this. Uh, this clarity increases, this sense of this uh, confidence. Because <coughs> just the, the, more we, the more we awaken in the present and just and reflect and observe the results of attachment. Whenever I, I suffer, I feel suffering or some kind of mental anguish or whatever, then I, I, I know that this is because of attachment. There's something I want or don't want. And going to that, and just by recognizing that, going to the source is the desire for something I don't have or desire to get rid of something, not wanting something to be the way it is. So just by exploring on that level more and more the the cessation, the third noble truth is is uh, insight into that arises. Now, in monastic life, you know, you, just how we hold monasticism, you know, do in, in the, how we, you know, we it's another form, isn't it? Theravada Buddhism, Thai Forest Tradition, uh, uh, Amravati, Chithurst, uh, Wat Bananachat, and all these are places that we've trained in or lived in. And uh, then we have the, this idea of the Sangha and the Western Sangha, and all these are perceptions that we create, forms that. Uh, can be used conventionally, the conventions there, but they're also easy to attach to. 
And so one's altruistic side easily becomes activated through, you know, I remember people saying, you've, you know, you're, you're here to spread Buddhism in the West. And that seems like a good idea, you know, uh, to, to think of, you know, I'm established the Sangha in Europe and spread the teaching of the Buddha in the West, all very kind of uh, high-minded and, and altruistic. But as an attachment, it leads to suffering. You know, I found that even I'm being attached to, to the most high-minded views was still unsatisfying. It, one would easily fall back because the conditioned realm, one, if you don't recognize it for what it is, once even attaching to the best of it puts you back into that vortex of samsara. I noticed this in the monastic life here at Amravati, twenty years now in this place. That, that as soon as I, uh, you know, even out of good intentions or, or altruism, uh, by just attaching and 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 operating from uh, attachment to conditions, would throw me into that old cycle of samsara and you just go around in it It, one thing goes on to the next and that's just the way it is that if you if you don't recognize the cessation of samsara then one is always caught in samsara and there's, there's no way out until you awaken to that so the awakened state then is is uh, is always here and now. The, the all conditioned phenomena is impermanent. <laughs> we say it all the time. <laughs> but it's not a it's not a mental thing, is it? It's not like I'm I'm I just believe in that or or uh, keep just repeating that in my mind, but investigating. What is transcending? What is the cessation of conditions? What is is anatta? What is the deathless? What is nibbana in the reality of now? And of course I have to give up thinking about it because one thought goes on to the next. You know, if I start thinking about it, whether, you know, in terms of can I or can't I or should I or shouldn't I or is it possible or not, or uh, that, then one just gets caught in that cycle again, thinking one thought goes on to the next. The personality I have, they is one that that. Uh, it was conditioned uh, in a way that it tends to be uh, very critical. So it it's uh, it's very much aware of of what's wrong and what I don't like, both in myself and in the world around me. It always takes me to doubt when I when I just try to think and solve 
problems through, through thought, through analysis, through rationalizing, I end up just feeling despair every time. Because thinking is, is uh, such a limited function again. It's another form. It's another limitation. Our very thought patterns, thoughts themselves. So that's why you can't think yourself, think your way into enlightenment or liberation. So then what do you do if you, you know, if you give up thinking and then you begin to recognize the power of awareness. Because awareness is before thought. And that awakeness, mindfulness, is before thinking. So, in the, then emotion, emotional habits. It's... Uh, dealing with, with one's emotional uh, world is also to be put in the context of emotional <coughs> experiences like this. It's another form, isn't it? It's a habit. It's a reaction. They push the button, praise, and, and I jump for joy, uh, blame, and I get depressed. So the emotional world is... Uh, is one to to transcend, not to follow, not to identify with anymore. So how do you do that? How do you how can you see emotional habits? Not if you start analyzing them, then you just go around with them again, you know, trying to figure out why do I feel threatened by this? Why do I feel so frightened of that? And, and then try to analyze and figure out uh, why I am this way. I never transcend it. You know, I might come to some interesting uh, conclusions about it, but the actual transcendence or liberation from it is not possible till you let go of it. So letting go then is is that which leads you to where the you see the how emotional habits arise and cease the reality of fear and anger or self consciousness this obsession with oneself what people think and and uh, uh, these kind of uh, feelings. The awareness of them puts them in that in that position of in Pali of aramana or mental objects. It's not judging. It's not it's not analytical. It's not making any value judgment about them. It's just recognizing that emotional energy is this way. You know, whether it's anger or it's elation or fear. It's not we we don't even need to name it as that. We don't even have to call it fear or anger. It is what it is. It's energy that, uh, that depends on conditions for its arising. So this awareness then is what 
where we begin to recognize the path, the way of non-attachment, or as Lung Po Chao used to say, the ordinary. Being aware doesn't make me special anymore. I'm, no, I'm not a special person anymore. I'm not a, a gifted or, or non-gifted or good or bad or male or female or anything at all. When there's awareness, there's, not, there's nobody. And that's ordinary. If I start claiming, you know, I'm, I'm a, I've realized the Dhamma and I'm an enlightened master, then I become special, isn't it? Because that's how thought works. It puts you, puts you into, uh, into a category of something or other. Uh, uh, you know, the, the re- in the Vinaya, the, the, we're not encouraged to go around claiming states of attainment. Because monasticism, if used badly, can be can be another you know, can reinforce ego, our ego, becoming a master or a meditation master or a teacher or an ajahn or or uh, you know an authority on Buddhism. These these are these are make us special again, put us in in a special category above everyone who isn't. But awareness doesn't. Doesn't. There's nothing special about it. It's so ordinary that we don't even bother to notice it. You know, because you know, in terms of of the ego, where we want to be. You know, we feel we are special. I'm. My personality uh, always is about me and what I think, and my opinion, what I like, and what I approve of, and don't like, and what life has done to me and how it should or shouldn't be. My personality operates like that. It's all about me and what I think and feel. And it always, whether, you know, even if I think I'm not special, I'm still, my attachment to Sakya Ditti or personality makes, always gives this feeling of separation and being special in, in, in the fact that I'm separate from you. So, like Sakya Ditti is, uh, is can't be trusted. I can't trust my personality. I don't trust the memories or emotions. I don't, you know, I know what they are. I can I recognize them, but I don't trust them. They're not they're not conditions that I would uh, that I want to perpetuate or identify with. So then the challenge, say, of monastic life is the, is the ongoing challenge of trusting in awareness. And for me, of course, that's listening. You know, it's like, to me, the, that my insights came through through attentive listening because I could actually listen to my personality 
complaining and grumbling. I remember the, you know, how in the first years in with living with Lung Pao Cha, uh, I'd co- you know, I didn't complain outwardly uh, because uh, you know, you it was, I couldn't speak Thai well enough at the time to complain in Thai. <laughs> but, the, uh, but there's a lot of complaining inwardly. And, uh, and so I kept listening. I learned to listen to my complaining mind. Uh, and just by listening, I thought, do I want to, to spend the rest of my life complaining about everything? Uh, do I really want to to perpetuate this? Just you know, at seventy years old, will I still be complaining about everything? <laughs> and that was dreary, isn't it? Because uh, having a complaining mind is certainly unpleasant. You know, certainly makes life dreary. And if you complain to others, then you then you always you're making everybody else miserable. You know, so start complaining in, in, to other people, and then they, you know, if they get caught in my complaints, or they feel upset because I'm complaining about something, then, then I'm just creating waves of misery around me and inside me. So then this, this reflecting, this seeing the suffering of, of that, of just following those complaining tendencies. And then learning to reflect on, like monasticism is is very good for putting that into perspective because it is, uh, you know, you it's it's a life of contentment, isn't it? The the idea of the four requisites and the 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 holy life is for contentment, is for being content uh, with with very with with hardly anything at all. With just what is offered, even if it isn't very much. So this contentment uh, was was Lumpacha uh, uh, used to talk a lot about. You know, contentment. And if you're complaining, then you know, then I can't be content. You know, just because there's always something to complain about. I can always find something to complain about. Even now, if I if I want to, <laughs> because the conditioned realm is, there's, it's, it's always something wrong with it. And uh, something that shouldn't be or should be. So, Recognizing this, this uh, using this form, this monastic form that we have for contentment, uh, rather than for status or, or for you know to to make yourself more unhappy. So, in terms of, you know, dhammavinya, the, the, the dhamma. Is which we teach the Dhamma, the Vinaya is respected, or requisites are adequate. 
Then just on that level, you think, this is, this is nothing to complain about. Because that's how my mind works. So in, in this way, the, 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 you know, if we want the best place and the best conditions, then, then we can complain because, you know, say it's too noisy here or too many people or, or you know, I can't get along with these people or these monks or these nuns. And, and we can always find something to, to grumble about. But if we're willing to use that and, and, and see the way of arising and ceasing, these, these, these emotional habits of arising and ceasing, then the cessation of them isn't dependent on on, may, on getting what you want, but on, on it, it leads to, to contentment and gratitude. Now that's, a, that's the, the good result of the holy life of, of monasticism for me, is that, uh, you know, it's... Uh, Yesterday I was sitting in my kuti and uh, looking out the window at the dragonflies on the pond, just feeling perfectly content. Life can't get better than this. This is perfect. Not wanting anything. Not dwelling on problems and things I don't like or that irritate or frustrate me, not getting caught up into that. Just being fully present. And of course it was a sunny afternoon with a beautiful place. But the contentment wasn't dependent on that either. It comes from, from awareness, through mindfulness. So then there's a, a lot of gratitude towards, uh, ha- towards the monastic life. You know, just having such an opportunity uh, made available uh, to live here in this nice place and, and in such a way that, that, that uh, you know, it's just so lovely in, in, it, in, the, in the life you know, for a human individual to live in this way. To me, it's a, it's a great honor. And something to not take for granted and just, you know, see as a, you know, something that, uh, you're not to recognize that, but just to, you know, follow the, the momentum of, aversion or complaining or discontentment in regards to the, the conditions that we experience here. Because like the, on the personal level, isn't it, we, we conflict the nature of personality. And I was talking to Ajahn Sajita yesterday morning, he pointed out that, that karma is dysfunction. I quite like <laughs> Never thought of it quite like that. It, that's a good reflection. We think we shouldn't be dysfunctional. We shouldn't, 
you know, we're trying to make the perfect community of complete transparency and and where, you know, everything is just, you know, all our emotional conflicts, personal conflicts are resolved in skillful ways and these are kind of ideals. But when you, when you really look at it, each one of us is working out karma of some kind, which doesn't necessarily, you know, align with someone else's. You know, it can be very different to karmic tendencies, personalities, attitudes, characters. That, that we, you know, we can, it's part of the process of irritating each other. <coughs> now, some of you enter monastic life hoping you'll find a perfect functional family of, of harmonious community, maybe. That's an ideal, isn't it? That's not, not to despise that, but, I mean, but it's very idealistic. Uh, because when you recognize the, the reality of a community, each one of us is, is what we are, you know, we, we can't help it. I can't, you know, become what you want. I can only, I have to be, you know, w- live with this, the way I am, the way I look, being 70 years old, being big. Being a male, being a man, things like this. This is just the way it is. They, being American. So the, in this way, this, these things can be threatening or irritating or conflicting to others. But, but that's not really a problem unless we want to make it one, isn't it? Because when we... When we, when our, when our, all we, we know is the conditioned realm, then we want to idealize it. Isn't it. We want to make perfect conditions where we feel safe and, and uh, secure and loved and protected and harmonious through the ideals. But this realm, this human realm, this planetary life, this sense world that we, we live in is like this. It's not not an ideal realm at all. And, and families or communities or societies, they, they're a collection of individuals. So even though we, we have the same aspiration, yet the, the conflicts are around the personal usually. So that's uh, the then that to be seen is terms of dhamma rather than just caught into the reactions we have of liking disliking uh, the conditions that we're that we are experiencing in the present. Now that's awareness then takes us to that place of discerning, but not of liking or disliking, isn't it? Awareness, satipanya, allows us to see things as they are. It's not critical, it's not approving or disapproving, but it certainly knows the way it is. And in that, in that awareness, that awakeness, then things are in, a, in perspective. You know, they're bearable. Conflict 
irritation, frustration, these are all bearable conditions. Not getting what I want, getting something I don't want, these are all endurable. From that position of awareness, from position of my emotional habits, I, I can't bear this, I can't stand this, this is, I've, you know, that's, my, that's how my personality and emotions work. Something I don't like, I can't stand it, I can't bear it. <clears throat> but I can't trust that. I don't trust that. I trust the awareness of it. And with awareness, then I can bear anything. With awareness, I can endure all kinds of frustrations, irritations. So in this, this uh, 70th birthday, this, this offering of this reflection, you've heard it many times over, but it, 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 it does, we do uh, need that kind of reminding and encouragement because monasticism does. It goes, you know, it gets dreary and pointless and meaningless and, and boring and, disap- you know, disillusioned with it. These are part of the experience. Isn't that these are mental states we create. You know, when you when you come into monasticism and you, you have inspiration and you 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 think, Oh this is this is what I want and this is this is how I want to live my life these are these are the kind of momentum propels us into the form. But then, like any form, it becomes boring, tedious. You can disillusion with it. We resent its restrictions. Doesn't allow us intimacy and relationship the way we want. We can't get what we want, and we, you know, and we can think of many more options that would look like you know, look much better. <coughs> But that's but this is where the awareness is the refuge, isn't it? It's uh, you know part awareness that like like any form gets boring and tedious. Marriage and all these you know, those of you who've been married recognize how boring it is after a while. You know how how disillusioning it is if you if you know if you've had a great romantic affair and then you you get married to each other and then how boring it becomes. That's part of it, isn't it? Nothing, convention, conventions can't stay at a high level of inspiration and romance. So that's the point in commitment, isn't it? Like commitment to the monastic life. It, it carries you through those dreary plateaus Forty years in the desert, or the valley of morbidio inferiore. <clears throat> and that's where I found the most insight coming is when, when, when everything looks most at its worst, and uh, you know, I'm utterly bored and just kind of fed up with it all, and fed up with monks and nuns and Theravada. 
and all that kind of thing, then, then it, you know, I know better than to than to uh, attach to those those perceptions. So the awareness then is awakening to that boredom disillusionment is like this, disillusionment is like this, resentment is like this, being fed up is like this. Just by noticing, making it fully conscious, boredom, fully conscious, restlessness, fully conscious, disillusionment, fully conscious, then I notice they cease, you know, their, their conditions like any other, they arise and they cease. And then that cessation is the peace. Anicca vada sankra. <laughs> so in that cessation, that's where we find the liber- where we realize liberation. So in in uh, say monastic form, it's it's learning to, you know, it's part of the. Uh, the spectrum of, of emotional experience will arise from great love and inspiration, aversion, disillusionment, boredom. And then one finds contentment through awareness and gratitude. Now without that, you know, without gratitude and contentment, then it is, you know, Life is, you know, is looking for something else, something that will make me happy. <coughs> and so the mind, and you know, one is going to find, look for something else. So you know, it's like the Samana Sanya reflections, uh, the the uh, the ten dhammas that should be reflected upon, and the four requisites, and these are all not meant to be kind of idealistic reflections that you should be content. Contentment can't be demanded, isn't it? I can't say you should be content and, 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 make, and demand that you be content with the four requisites and that. When I do that, then I'm, then it's in a, then I'm, you know, I'm going to be terribly disappointed because Contentment comes through understanding, not through through holding to a view that you should be content with everything. It also means that we have to allow discontentment to be fully recognized in consciousness. Allowing our discontentment, our complaints, our resentments to be fully conscious, but seen in this, in this way of satipanya, rather than believed in and followed. So then uh, people think, what would like me to live to a hundred, some of you. (laughs) But uh, I have no longing for a long life. Three digits, no, thank you. <laughs> but uh, I do find uh, 70 being, uh, you know, is a very uh, 
it's a, it's a very good age to be. And uh, it's like you don't, you just don't care anymore. And it's not a negative state. It's not like, you know, like I'm fed up and I just don't give a damn. It's not that. But all the little petty little problems and, and that just don't seem, no, no longer, you know, don't care about them. And uh, it's, part, you know, being old and, and, and having learned from one's life. When I look back at my life, uh, I feel uh, I've lived it very well. You know, I, want to feel, I feel that I've used this lifetime very, very well. That it hasn't been a waste at all. And um, for me, the monastic life hasn't been a disappointment. Uh, it's, uh, it's not something that I feel disappointed with or that I feel I could have done better if I've had followed something else. So th- this, uh, you know, I do feel a lot of gratitude to the Buddha and uh, to the Sangha, to Lumpur Cha, to the t- various teachers I've had. And last uh, January, during the celebration uh, at Wat Pong on the 16th of January, uh, we were going in procession uh, around the stupa, and then who appears, who I hadn't seen for years, was my old friend Ajahn Som from Tamsang Pet. And uh, Ajahn Som was... Well, I lived with him for two years. He was a head monk at Tamsang Pet, which is a branch monastery. And Ajahn Som, I was very critical of when I lived with him. And it was easy to be critical of him. (laughs) He had so many faults (laughs) that uh, you couldn't not be critical of him. So... So, um, and everybody was critical of him. But yet I lived two years with him. And, uh, and I did, you know, I did learn from that. I learned a lot from, from that experience. He was with Lung Po Cha, who I adored. You know, Ajahn Chah, great teacher. Ajahn Som, no good. <laughs> But then I could reflect on that. And, and, you know, basically with Ajahn Som, there was the Dhamma, the Vinaya, the Four Requisites were adequate. The, um, his Vinaya wasn't very good. <laughs> but it was still there. <laughs> so, so, uh, so then meeting him again uh, on this, as we were processing around this, the Teddy, I felt incredible joy and gratitude to him. You know, see, he's a kind of wise and old man now. And he obviously was very glad to see me. So, and this is, uh, you know, things that, you know, I remember at the time living with him, I, having moments where I can't stand him. And I used to, I loved Tam Sangpet very much. I was incredibly attached to this branch monastery. So I was determined to live there. 
And I kept thinking, why doesn't Ajahn Chah put another monk in charge? You know, why does he allow this monk to be there? He's just nothing but trouble. And my critical mind would, would go on like that, you know. Why doesn't Lung Pacha, you know, do something about it? And why doesn't, you know, Tamsang Pet is an important monastery and we should get somebody more, and I get into my righteousness. I can be really a snotty, self-righteous character. And so then I remember going to Lung Pacha and, and uh, saying, you know, we've got to do something. <laughs> But Lung Po Chai could never intimidate him or wind him up. He just <laughs> and and he says, then he says very kindly, he says, "Well, you know, Ajahn Som still listens to me. He's he'll still is a part of him that still listens." And he said, "I respect that." And so I could see Ajahn Chai with great compassion. You know, he saw, you know, that even with with a monk that everybody was critical of and the lay people criticized, still, you know, Lung Po Cha could see that there was this, this, this opening, this, this potential. So compassion, isn't it? I found that much more beautiful mental state than my self-righteous position, wanting to get it right. Uh, wanting to punish Ajahn Som. This is, this is, these are not beautiful mental states when you look at them. They're not peaceful or conducive towards uh, happiness. Do I offer this as a reflection? <laughs> <laughs> 